Today on Let Me Be Frank, the month of June is dedicated to the most sacred heart of Jesus. So, in the first segment today, Bishop Caggiano will talk about that devotion that was revealed first to St. Margaret Mary Alacoque, but has a history that goes back even farther than her. And then in the second segment, His Excellency will take us through a discussion about the common good. It's a very Catholic idea, so what is it? What is it not? How do we promote it? Keep your radio dial right here at 1350 AM, or keep us on your phone if you're using the Veritas Catholic Network app. Our live broadcasts and our podcasts come through crystal clear on the app, which you can download from the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or VeritasCatholic.com. We are bringing the truth to Connecticut and New York, so when you're tired of listening to noise on the radio, put on Veritas and be fed. All right, this is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. I am Steve Lee, and it is my great pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, nice to, nice to be with you, as always. Excellency, great to see you. So, uh, we are... Um, Excellency, the world uh, is celebrating Pride Month, and we are really bombarded by it everywhere we go now. Mm-hmm. But for Catholics, I think we need to make some noise about the fact that this June is the month of the Sacred Heart. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it is a call for us to reflect deeply upon the sacred humanity of Jesus, which is imaged in his Sacred Heart. Right? The compassionate, self-sacrificing love of God, right? That is the Lord for the redemption of humanity. And how the Lord continues to bear the sufferings of his people, including the suffering of being ignored, the suffering of not being attended to, the suffering that the Lord still in some sense, all right, in his heart, endures because people will not accept his message or him or the gift. It's like being in front of someone to whom you want to give a gift and they keep rebuffing you. It's exactly where we're at, right? Yeah. So, so the image is powerful, but the theological insight here, the spiritual, mystical, theological insight, is as old as our faith, right? Because it was born in Calvary, right? but in more recent times has taken on a devotional life, which calls us in the month of June to be focused on the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Yes. Yep. So, so if I were to ask you, Steve. If there's what if you had to use one word to describe the mystery of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, is there a word that comes to mind for you? One, one word. Uh, no, I can't I'll put think you on of. The spot. I'm putting you on the spot, right? Mercy. Okay. Ah, yes, absolutely, mercy, exactly, compassion, to suffer with. So the Lord is is. In, he suffered with us in his death, and he continues to be with us in our sufferings. It's the compassionate, merciful love of God. That's really what we're talking about with the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And when you think of the Sacred Heart, then you think of consecration to, along with the dedication to, and reparation to the heart of Jesus, 
So what does it mean to consecrate yourself right, to the love of, to, to the sacred heart of Jesus, to consecrate yourself? Right? Is to basically, all right, it's consacrare, is to be holy with. It is to become one with and to allow that heart to be the source that you imitate. So we speak of the compassion of God, but our consecration to the heart of Jesus is to have a heart like Jesus. St. Margaret Mary spoke of receiving the gift of the heart of Jesus, replacing her own heart. So we consecrate ourselves so that we could be the compassion of, of the Lord Jesus in the world. But we also have to do reparation to the heart of Jesus for all the, all the reasons I mentioned to you before. My own personal sins, our corporate sins, and the sins of humanity against this very gentle and loving God that we're talking about. And how do we do reparation? You have to admit your sins first, and then in, active, in an active way, through pr prayer and penance and corporate works of mercy and charity, to try in some way to make up for the damage that you and I have created by our sins. And we do that in our devotion to the heart of Jesus. You know, it's interesting. The devotion to the heart of Jesus was preceded earlier in history by the Franciscan emphasis on the, on the wounds of Jesus, the five wounds of Jesus. And again, those, those wounds are the visible, tangible expression of how much God loves us to have endured that level of suffering for us, for you, for me, for me, for you. And Francis had the stigmata, right? He was given the gift of the stigmata. So in the Franciscan imagination in the Middle Ages, that was an important piece of their spirituality. Why did they found to have that? Why did he share in the wounds of Christ? And we've talked before about the wounds remaining visible in the Lord Jesus after his resurrection. But then it focused on this question of emphasizing in the actual sacred heart itself. Right? And it, what began as private devotions that were very much a part of the religious congregations, including the Jesuits, right? then became a devotion for the universal church by the 20th century. And when we look at St. Margaret Mary, and I, th I guess we'll talk about St. Margaret Mary, right? In a yeah, bit. yeah. Um, they were private revelations given to her that eventually became public, right? I think the intervention of a bishop, if I'm not mistaken, or a priest, I forget exactly. I have it written in my notes. Um, but it became then the catalyst for the public veneration of the Sacred Heart. And I, my suspicion is there are, there are some in our midst who are having these private relations, they, they occur periodically in the church to bring the church to greater renewal and greater sanctity. Mm -hmm. So it, it's, in, it's interesting because when, you, when most people think of the Sacred Heart, the, the devotion, they're starting there where you just ended. I mean, and you're going to continue, but they start with St. Margaret Mary, but you're saying it goes right. back to the Franciscans and it goes back to the crucifixion and... Yeah, of course. It, it's, 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 in other words, it was always there in a latent way. And with the experience of the church, 
right, as, as our understanding and our spiritual understanding grows, then certain things rise to the surface so that there isn't forgetfulness, right, or amnesia of the central aspects of our faith, which is what we're talking about. You know, how would you describe the Sacred Heart? There are different depictions of the, of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, right? Yes, yep. But so, what does it look like? What do you remember? Uh, um, oh gosh, I should have looked it up before today. But uh, it, um, does it have a it's, crown on it? Well, it's a flaming heart many yes. times, right? And there's light in some depictions that's come out of it. And there is a lance that pierces it and a crown of thorns. Mm, right. And sometimes there's a cross above it. So what does all that indicate? Well, aren't those the elements of the Lord's passion on the cross? Right. Yes. So the cross was the instrument. The crown of thorns was placed in his agony. Right. Which, by the way, I always wondered to myself, I mean, there was the Jesus was scourged at the pillar and then secondly was crowned with thorns. So there was the bodily affliction and then there was the humiliation of the claim they believed he was making. Right. So the crown of thorns was not just physical, but it was also a mental and psychological attempt at humiliation, degradation of the person, right? And then there was the lance, right? And blood and water flow, which is of St. Faustina. Yes. So when you look at the Sacred Heart, it really is like, um, I'm not sure what the English word is. Composite's not the right word, but it, it, it almost depicts the whole passion and crucifixion of Christ in one image. Yeah. Right? And then the light that emits from it, the light is that life and enlightenment and newness that comes in the moment of the Lord's death, right? And that's exactly what we're talking about because we're not morbid here. We're not, we're not recalling Jesus' passion and death for no other reason except it was the victory of Christ that brought into the world the hope and life and light that we now live. You know, we talk about the mercy of God. We also need to talk about the humility of God in this. The free emptying of God to do this. When you look at the sacred heart of Jesus, you're looking at something that reminds you of how wildly God loves you, right? So the crown of thorns he wore for me the lance in his heart he did for me. He hung on the cross for me. Whether I merit it or not, whether I deserve it or not, whether I acknowledge it or not, he did it for me. So the humanity of Jesus is the centerpiece of the sacred heart of Jesus. It's not, it, it, his divinity is always there, he's his victor, but it's bringing to the fore the humanity and the, and, the, and the gift of that humanity being poured out for us. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about some of the, of the saints that spoke about, you know, I mentioned already the Franciscans with the five wounds of Jesus. 
that was the earliest recognition of the sacred humanity of Christ and it being the vehicle of the compassion and mercy of God in the world, right? St. Bonaventure wrote about it as well. And these are all forebears to St. Margaret Mary who lived in the 17th century. So this is five centuries before, right? Same St. Gertrude, who I believe now is one of the doctors of the church, okay? Right? It, it, it was that, at the beginning, it was more of a sense of mysticism. Because you know what, the truth is, the, the most profound mysteries of our faith defy description, really. There's, there, I mean, there's only so much you could say about it, right? And then there's a language that's spoken without words, right? You're entering into such a deep and profound reality that symbols or images speak more powerfully than words. So if you have the picture of the Sacred Heart, you don't need everything I'm just saying. Just, just meditate on it, right? And then there's almost that asceticism that arises too, right? You know, the, the response to it, like, oh, so therefore what do I do in response to so great a gift? And I think that set the stage for St. Margaret Mary Alacoque. And shall we talk a bit about her, you think? Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, let's do that. I'm just soaking it in, Excellency, because we have a, we have a, a picture of um, the Sacred Heart of Jesus up in our house. And, I mean, admittedly, I never knew how to approach it. And so, mm -hmm. as you're talking here, I'm just thinking about that and just kind of soaking in it. So, mm -hmm. let's talk mm -hmm. about St. Margaret Mary Alacoque. Yeah. Well, she was born in 1647 and died in 1690. So it's, it's the heart of the 17th century. And it is more than 100 years past the Council of Trent, right? So the church is in the Counter-Reformation, right? And it is rebuilding, it's renewing. And she herself, as a child, had a very, it, it is said that she had a deep, spiritual life. As a child, she didn't want to engage in play, and she was much more of a silent type, prayerful and reflective type. Right? And it's interesting, when I, I, I read up on St. Margaret Mary for our uh, broadcast, I did not know that she had rheumatic fever as a child. Some of us did, I did myself. And she got it when she was at nine years old. I contracted it when I was 10 years old, which is, you know, so I've always had a great devotion to St. Margaret Mary because of the Sacred Heart. And now, even now more so, I think we have kindred with kindred. And her reaction to it was obviously very different than mine. <laughs> that plunged her into this deep quest for holiness. And I'm catching up all along the way. And at that point, she had this burning desire to enter into religious life. And that's when she added the name Mary to Margaret. Margaret's of Abdismaid. So it's Margaret Mary Alacoque, which is great. Okay. And her family had some issues with finances after her father died. And so they experienced tremendous poverty. And then when they were able to recoup their money, she had, for a brief period of time, um, lost a bit of the dedication, the ardor, um, to have this intimate, profound relationship with Jesus. 
And with her brother's help, she was socializing. She wanted to go out to see if she could find a husband, blah, blah, blah. You know, the usual stuff a teenager would do. And then one day, coming from one of these parties, she had a vision, mm -hmm. the first of the private revelations. And the Lord Jesus scourged and bloody before her. So what she saw is what Jesus looked like after the scourging and crowning of thorns. What anyone who had two eyes to see would have seen it in that moment. Yeah. And could you imagine in that moment what her reaction may have been? Talk about having cold water thrown on you, spiritual <laughs> cold water thrown on you. And as our Lord is, because of his compassionate, merciful heart, um, certainly reproached her for not taking seriously the gift she received recovering from rheumatic fever. But he also asked her, right, reassured her, that he would be with her and fill her heart with love. And that began that journey, right? So she returned back to the pursuit of religious life, and it wasn't easy for her, from what I can gather, in her lifetime, right? And even her profession to religious life was delayed a bit. But she finally entered in, and her private revelations began on the feast of St. John the Evangelist in 1673, which is two days past Christmas. And in that divisions, this idea, the form of the devotion to the Sacred Heart arose. And essentially, it has some basic parts to it. That is, Holy Communion, each of the first Fridays of every month, for at least nine consecutive Fridays. It's going to a Eucharistic Adoration Holy Hour on Thursday, which is the day of the institution of the Eucharist and priesthood, and the celebration of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, which is um, the Friday, right, after Corpus Christi. So it is, if my math is correct, no, I may not be correct, it's roughly like 19 days after Pentecost, more or less, right? Someone can correct me if they do math, but the math was not my forte, right? <laughs> and, I and I run a diocese, which is kind of scary even to admit, <laughs> but that's another story. That's, that's for another podcast. <clears throat> and and it, the meditation on the Holy Hour on Thursdays is to meditate specifically on the agony of Jesus in Gethsemane, where Jesus' humanity is almost raw. Is it not St. Luke that says he sweated blood? Mm -hmm. right. right, from the profound agony and passion he was going through. And from that, um, she began, she, she, she related these visions, they were private, and then when they were disseminated, right, which I believe was after her death, then what we have now is due to her, right? And this gift that was given to her is now being given to all of us. If I'm not mistaken too, I think it was Pope Leo XIII, no, Pope Leo XII, that declared her venerable. And she was canonized um, in the 20th century. I believe it was in the, early in the early 1920s, could have been 1920 or around that time, by Benedict XV. Right. 
she was canonized. And her, her feast day remains on the calendar. Right, for us. yes. Mm-hmm. I think I, I kind of like the fact also that, um, you know, May, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm taking a step back now, Excellency, but May is the month of Mary, and uh, mm-hmm. June is the month of the Sacred Heart. Mm-hmm. And so as May leads into June, doesn't Mary also lead us to the heart of her sure. son? And then it's the relationship between the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary. They're one day apart, the, the commemorations. Right, because the Immaculate Heart, so that's the connection you're referring to. Because Our Lady also profoundly suffered in the suffering of her son. And as the bridge between her son and us, that sometimes when you look at the heart of Jesus and you're tempted with this false idea that, well, he's God, so he could have endured this, but then Our Lady also had profound sufferings as well to remind us, no, 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 this is real and our, our self-sacrifice is to be united yeah. to him. Mm-hmm. So for, for us, in order to um, consecrate ourselves to the Sacred Heart, as you mentioned in the beginning, and also to perform reparations, uh, what would you recommend? First Friday, Holy Hours, what, what would you recommend for us? Well, well, I think certainly the First Friday attendance at Mass, if it is at all possible, and reception of Holy Communion is fundamental. Because in, in the mystical understanding of what we're doing, that's when there is union, right, in the most profound way you can on this side of death with Jesus, the sacred heart of Jesus, all right? It's when you receive his body, blood, soul, and divinity, right? So th- those Fridays, and of course, on the feast of the sacred heart, to attend mass and receive communion, right, would be like the pinnacle of those, of those monthly devotions with mass and communion. And the holy hour of Eucharistic adoration, that may be a bit more difficult because you have to find where the Eucharistic adoration is being offered in parishes on Thursdays. Like for those of, of, of who are listening who are in the city, there is perpetual adoration in the city. Perpetual adoration is rising in our diocese as well, and many parishes now have adoration on, on Thursdays, precisely right the first Thursdays of every month to tie it into this devotion. So I would think Mass and Holy Communion on the first Fridays of the month is absolutely where you would start. And even if there's not the Eucharist uh, in the monstrance, I mean, it's just as good or almost just as, yes. Well, he's there. He's there. He's he's behind, he's veiled rather than visible. You're still in his presence. He's there. Yeah. Without a doubt. Right. And do not think that the, uh, the little door is going to make any difference to the power and grace of Christ. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not in the least. Right? Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of this, um, uh, this idea of enthroning your house to the sacred heart of Jesus? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, if my, if, if my memory serves me correctly, among the Filipino people, this is a huge devotion. And in parts of Latin America, it's taken on a huge devotion. Well, it's the whole idea of who is the king of your household? Right. Who actually is the foundation of your house? Yeah. And if anybody says it's me, you got to go back to the drawing board because it's not. <laughs> right. But the enthronement of the sacred heart of Jesus, not the enthronement of Christ the king or sovereign of the universe, 
is interesting to think about. So what is the foundation of, of a home? Well, it's the Lord that is the compassionate one, the suffering one, the one who gives until there's nothing else to give. I often wonder to myself, is that not also teaching us how a family can remain holy and centered in Christ? Can that not be what this is really saying? You want to have the Lord the center of your family, then you have to be compassion. You need to unite your heart with his and do what he did, humility, yes. self-sacrifice, compassion, forgiveness. And that can make a household a true family. Yeah. Right? Yeah. For me, as the father of the house, I should use that as the model, not uh, put myself up as king <laughs> over my kids. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I mean, right. <laughs> right. Which doesn't mean that you don't use your authority. You have to. Of course. Right? But exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, Leo XIII consecrated the entire world to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And that was out of the influence of St. Mary of the Divine Heart, not St. Saint, Saint Margaret Mary Alacor. But, it, but it's the line of it moving forward. Right? Um, and when was that? She Excellent. was the one. She is a, a, a sister uh -huh. of the Congregation of Our Lady of Charity of the Good Shepherd, who lived from 1863 to 1899. So she died okay. very young, actually. Mm -hmm. And she also had private revelations in Portugal. And her provoked her to write to Leo XIII to say that the Pope had to consecrate the whole world to the Sacred Heart. And of course, what Popes usually do is they don't do much, they wait, right? And she wrote again, and eventually, um, he did. He did, which was the day after she died. She died on the 8th of June, 1899, hmm. which was first Vespers of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And he consecrated the world to the Sacred Heart the next day. It's almost hmm. as if her, her mission had been accomplished. So you see how it began in the, it, it's, it's obviously central to our faith, and how it arose in the church, all right? in such a powerful way, because this is a key aspect of who we are we can't lose. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Fantastic. Let's, uh, we, we got a, a, a pretty heavy subject on the other side of the break, Excellency. Um, we're going to talk about the common good. Oh, I thought um, we were going to talk about the Mets. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> okay. We don't want to make anybody cry. <laughs> this... <laughs> This is Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano on the Veritas Catholic Network. We will be right back. <laughs> Catholic Radio works, and now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic Radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith. Families are strengthened, parishes and communities flourish. So, let people know you're listening to Veritas, tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and his church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. All right, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Excellency, deep, mm -hmm. deep subject now. We're gonna talk yes. about the common good. So I'm here with my pen and paper in hand ready okay. to take notes and learn. Are you for or against? <laughs> for, of course. <laughs> of course, of course. See, 
this is this is a external, uh, foundational principle, theologically, legally, even a secular society, right? And it has fallen into uh, a tremendous amount of debate because we live in an age where, as we've said many times before, the emphasis is turned on the subject. And when you do that, there is an emphasis on my individual rights. Now, there are inalienable human rights. Okay? And those are obvious. But if, you, if we lived in a society where everyone interpreted their rights the way they thought and pursued their implementation, their realization, with unbridled zeal, you would have open warfare on the streets. So what prevents the open warfare? What's the counterbalance to my individual rights? And that is this concept of the common good. Now, from my layman's point of view, to try to define the common good is not that easy to do. I'm sure if we had a lawyer here, perhaps we can one day, or a canonist or, um, or a moralist, they could give you a very clean definition. But I would put it this way. The common good are the common values we hold together. And therefore, those values are essential so that society can function correctly and create the environment that allows individuals to prosper correctly, wholly, fully. So in a sense, individual rights can only be realized fully when there is an understanding of the common good and an acceptance of the common good that, as people of faith, is rooted in divine revelation. It's rooted in what the Lord has taught us about community and the value of community and the meaning of community. Unfortunately, we live in a time when the common consensus is breaking down. And therefore, the understanding of what the common good is is breaking down. And I will give you a perfect example of what I mean. All right? And people who are listening to this may disagree, in which case I'd be very happy to hear their thoughts on this. Right. I could give you two examples. The first is um, the whole question of um, abortion. We have characterized it in the secular world as a choice. In fact, it's not a choice. In fact, abortion is the taking of a human life that left to its natural progression would be able to be born and eventually grow into that which the Lord had intended all along. There was a time when the common good said, right, life is sacred, precious, and to be defended, 
because that's the common value we hold. And therefore, the common value says that the fetus needs to be protected. So the individual presumed right to make this choice does not trump the greater value that the common good right, says is inviolable, needs to be maintained at all times. But because we live in a time when there is this growing sense that life is disposable and there isn't a common understanding, right, that life is made in the image and likeness of God, that life is precious and unique, and life has to be defended whether it's unborn or whether it is sick or in intensive care or in a nursing home, then the balance between the common good and individual rights, that which corrects each other, is out of black. And that is why you have abortion now on demand, you have partial birth abortion, right? And that is why, in my estimation, we fight against this as people of faith, but the long-term solution to rectify this is to reinvigorate the common good and to have an articulation of what is it we as a secular cosmopolitan society hold together because it, is, it makes natural sense and it also makes supernatural sense to the people of faith. If you don't have that common understanding, then there's always gonna be a war because it's one right against another, fighting each other. But who brings them to the table to say, well, these are your proper places, this is what you can and can't do. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. And, and you said that the common good allows, uh, creates an environment where uh, the individual can thrive as well. Right. Well, in, in the example of abortion, there's an individual that's clearly not thriving, not even surviving, so that's, out the window. Right, exactly, right. And the common good, right, already, even a secular law, constricts certain rights that we have as individuals. So we, have a, we believe we have a right of self-expression and free expression, but you can't go into a movie theater and scream fire. Right. Right, because you would put other people in jeopardy, right? At least up to this point, we still have that understanding. God knows if that's gonna last in the long term, right? Who knows? But, but the point is, so the real question with the common good is, what are the common values we now hold? We have them in the church, and even in the church, they're under strain and duress. And you see that, right? But outside the church, in secular society, what are the values we hold together? What do, and how are they understood in a common way? So there are people who will say, for example, with abortion, that it is essential to a woman's dignity to have this ability to choose. But is that the case? Does that dignity rise and fall on that question? Or not? Right. And that's something we have to, we have to debate, even in the secular world. See, I think... In inside faith, in our community, it's obvious. Because we don't come together, for example, Sunday mornings, a sea of individuals. We come as a community. So the community's fundamental. 
If we were not grafted onto the mystical body of Christ, what would we be? So the fact that there's a common faith that transcends the individual, but totally, totally and completely encompasses the individual is part of the psyche of being a Christian. Now, we ourselves as a community of faith need to do more work clarifying that which we hold in common. And that demands education among all of us because many times people believe they believe what the churches believe, but in fact, they are believing something that the church has never taught, but they heard from somebody else, okay? So what are the values? in the secular world that we all hold in common. Freedom, but how do you live that freedom? So if a person says, I wanna live a lifestyle any way I want, I as a person of faith, do I have the freedom to say, but that can't be done in my schools? Or that can't be done in my, uh, you can't force me to do it in my home? Right. And then the question is, why is that? See, and we're missing something here, which is the fundamental values that should underlie and, and, and create that common place where we could have this conversation, which we do, can't do now because most of this has fallen apart. You see, America likes to consider itself to have been you know, uh, a place of freedom and liberty and all the rest. But in fact, America has always been a deeply religious Judeo-Christian country for a very long time from its founding, right? It created persecution, sadly, because of that. But that's gone now in the secular world. So when we talk about the common good, the question is, what are the values that we can agree on. And it's an open question because I'm not exactly sure I have the answer to that question from the, I know from a Christian point of view, I'm not exactly sure from a secular point of view. And quite frankly, I'm not sure anybody in the secular world is even asking the question. <laughs> it feels like it used to be, we could at least agree on life, liberty, and the pursuit, pursuit of happiness. I'm not sure, like you said, that that really applies in right. the secular world anymore. Right. And life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, I, I think we, we have a failing grade. Because to your point, life is under attack, not just in the womb, but in the womb, but um, elderly life, mm -hmm. sick life mm -hmm. is being attacked many times because of financial considerations. Elder abuse in this country is skyrocketing, and many times in part because of the assets that others will inherit. I mean, it is just heartbreaking to consider, apart from the scourge of abortion, which mm -hmm. itself is horrific, right? Yeah. So life, we're not doing so great there. Liberty is not freedom, okay? So liberty is you do whatever you want, and this is the chaos that we are now inheriting, right? And the pursuit of happiness, God never promised us we'd be happy. He only promised us we would be joyful. So in, in all cases, I mean, we have a lot of work to do, my friend, in this yeah. regard. You know, I think, um, so you, you and I both uh, love sports. It seems like an easy, as you were describing that, the, the image that came to me is, uh, the, the common good anyway, the image that came to me is that, 
you have um, baseball team or a basketball team with one superstar player, um, that superstar player cannot just take all the glory and try to do everything at the expense of his team. What's good for the team is what's also good for him or her. Right. Because that's how you win games and championships. Right. However, unfortunately, we live in a a time when most of the media attention is given to the superstars, not the team. Right. Which is emblematic of what we're talking about here. And that's why we live in a litigious society. Because my rights have been violated. Well, maybe not. Maybe you exercised your right incorrectly. Because the common good is protecting those that you're right by exercising would be hurt. <laughs> so then, Excellency, let me, let me ask you, uh, so then the common good, um, how do I put this in a way that's not, I don't mean this in a politi- political way, but I don't know how to ask the question other than, does the common good mean we need to have a bigger government? Oh my gosh, no, it has nothing to do with it. No. I mean, that's a political uh, um, discussion apart from the common good. Because the common good can be affected in natural ways, in neighborhoods, in communities, and societies that doesn't involve government. Government is necessary to do the things that local communities in and of themselves cannot do for themselves. Yes. And there's a legitimate role for government and a legitimate role for taxation. There's a legitimate role for all of that, without a doubt. But um, in the end, is the government the keeper of the values of the common good? Is it the larger society the keeper of the values of the common good that define the common good? Do we discover them? by natural reason alone, or as we people of faith would say, but they also reveal to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those are the questions that precede your question. Yes. And from my point of view, the government doesn't create them. The government government serves them. Yes, that's right. How do you put, you know, remember Humpty Dumpty on the wall? How do you put Humpty Dumpty back together again? Is the, is the question of our age. John Paul prayed for the end of the culture of death. How do you take apart the culture of death? Remember, the culture of death is in secular society, not in the right. church, right. right, presumably. Yep. So how do you take that apart? How do you take that apart? It would seem to me the conversation has to be, well, then where, where's the values? Where are your values that you are creating this culture? Yeah. And let's debate them. Yeah. Because the politics is downstream from the culture, not the right. other way around. Right. One could argue the only entity big enough is the government to do this. And I think that's mistaken. I think there is a way to do this. Right. And that is religious people in the forum they have with their leaders need to start raising these questions and raise them from a very basic, I'm gonna say natural point of view. What is it that we all hold in common that allows that space within which we then can dialogue? 
between different religious traditions and even secularists? What's that basic? It would be a fascinating conversation to have. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, right. The government, um, what I'm hearing from you is that the government plays a role, but it's not the, it's not the, the, it's not conducting it because we yeah. are endowed by the creator, creator with inalienable rights, not by the government. Correct. But yep. the government, so remember, we are endowed with human rights. But, but there has to be an understanding of what is, I'm going to be a little poetic, what's the rights of the community? What is the right of humanity that mitigates the unbridled use of my individual rights? What counterbalances that? And the government can't decide that. The government only protects it. And this idea that government now is the articulator of the social agenda because it is the one that is going to make this, uh, this progress among, <clears throat> that doesn't quite work that way. So then let's say um, the bigger responsibility comes from uh, the church, other religious mm-hmm. people. So it's uh, you and your brother bishops our pastors and priests, we the laity, how, how do we get started on this? How do we start uh, educating well, and promoting? This. Yes. All right. So this is going to be a big challenge, which we'll pick up in another podcast. The church does a great job of telling people the conclusion of what we believe. Mm-hmm. Abortion is immoral. It's sinful. It should not exist. Okay. We do a decent job of explaining it among some of our believers. We do a terrible job of explaining it to the secular world. From the point of view of a person who does not believe in Jesus Christ, does not believe in God, how do we bring that person to understand the fundamental value that we believe has been revealed so that just on a human level, they can begin to appreciate our starting point so we can have this dialogue about the why is it wrong not just that it is wrong. Yeah. And the fact that we always appeal that it is because Jesus took a human life. Yes, of course he did. Absolutely, God took a human life. It's precious beyond belief. But that's still from a prospect of faith. So we need to do a better job from, I'm going to say, a more from the natural point of view to begin to start using compelling arguments in secular society to say, do you see what you're missing here? Yeah. And we need to hold this in common so that people's rights don't trample or even kill other people. Yeah. Sounds basic, but it's, <laughs> it's unfortunately not. No, um, because we live in a time where even if, if the church attempted to do this, it would require a lot of persecution. So be it because you're going to have to enter into a realm where we will be given initially no credence and no hearing. Should that stop us? And that is what I think the time has come for us to really talk about, is not just for the common good, whatever it may be in all these questions that are dividing our country, is to do the starting point from the opposite position. So if you're in opposition because then let's talk your language to help you to understand what we see is missing. 
that's brought you to this conclusion. Yeah. Yep. All right. So uh, we'll take one more break, come back with a listener question. This is Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano on the Veritas Catholic Network. Why do we need Catholic radio? Because not everybody's sitting in front of a computer or watching their television set at home. How about when driving to work? How about while at work at your desk? Catholic Radio is there for you. I may be a Catholic priest, but I'm still a student of the faith. And Catholic Radio helps supply good material, whether it be a question-and-answer format show, whether it be a show itself on doctrine or theology. I myself, as a priest, am always learning. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency, here's the question that we got in for this week. It says, Bishop Caggiano, I know that cremation is not allowed by the Catholic Church. Is it okay to be an organ donor or is that immoral? Well, first of all, um, just if I may, cremation was always forbidden by the church because it was seen as an act that explicitly denied the resurrection of the body. But in contemporary times, provided that a person does not explicitly deny the faith in the act of cremation, cremation is in fact allowed. And in many ways, for families who are under tremendous financial distress, um, it allows them a proper way to bury their relatives. So cremation is allowed with that understanding. However, organ donation certainly is permitted morally because you're doing it for the good of trying to save another person's life. And organ donation can occur while you are living if it doesn't put you in mortal danger like the donation of a kidney. And certainly upon your death, it would be a tremendous way to, again, promote the value of life. So it is permitted. Mm -hmm. Very good. Okay, if you have a question for Bishop Frank, send it in to us on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and so is Veritas Catholic Network. Excellency, would you please give us your blessing? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. May the Lord bless you this day with the gift of his Holy Spirit, that he may give you perseverance, joy, and courage to be faithful in our contemporary troubled and broken world. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come upon us all and remain with us forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Excellency. Thank you, Steve. I'll see you. Ciao. See you, see you next week. Bye. 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 Bye.